The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. You can go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be, right there, first page of the Bible. And we are in a series called Made. We're talking about the dignity of human life. And uh, to start off our time, I thought I'd share a story, something that happened in my house. uh, This is now several days ago. Um, But we have two little boys, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Four-year-old's name's Hudson, two-year-old named Levi. And we actually have a a baby girl on the way, which we're very excited about. So baby number three is on the way for the Chains family. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. Yay, girls, that's great. Uh, So we're excited about that. Um, But right now, the dynamic between my four-year-old and my two-year-old is just hilarious. Um, They are best of friends, and at the same time, they get on each other's nerves, okay? So that's the dynamic. And recently, they were playing with a flashlight. It was one of those, like, hurricane flashlights that's giant, you know, very large with a big battery inside of it. And so they were, you know, they'd turn off all the lights in the house and run around and flash the light in places. But one of the things that uh, my son Levi has really grown an affection for lately is throwing random objects, so he just, he's going to be a quarterback one day, I'm convinced. So he, he likes to just pick up things that you wouldn't ordinarily throw or ever think to throw and throw them. So uh, we've been working on this. You know, I try and do my best parenting thing, get down on his level, look at his eyes. And one of the things I teach him and say is, Levi, son, we throw balls outside. We do not throw b- objects inside. So what do we throw, Levi? And he'd say, we throw balls outside. So that's kind of the speech that we give after the disciplinary moment, okay? Well, Levi decides to, on that particular day, he's playing with the flashlight, and he sees his big brother, and I don't know how, but the thought occurs to him, I want to throw this at him. So he takes that giant brick of a flashlight, and he just chucks it at my four-year-old, and it hits him right in the head. And it's waterworks and tears, and I'm angry. I'm like, Levi, what are you doing? Like, when did, why did anybody ever think of that? So I, I like, try and calm down, and I'm having a conversation with him. I, I reemphasize, we throw balls outside. None of that, okay? Anyways, fast forward a few days later. He's holding this other object, a toy. And I can see the look in his eyes. Like, it's, it's coming. I can see it. I spot it from across the room. And I look at him, and, and, and he starts to pick it up, and I say, Levi! And he looks over at me, and he has these big eyes. And he goes, I throw balls outside. And he drops it. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing. I, I tried to, like, c- contain myself. So now that's his thing. That's his little joke. So we throw balls outside. Okay. Anyway, so uh, I want you to think for a moment with me of the person, whoever this person was, who invented the flashlight. They had a particular design in mind when they created the flashlight. There was a purpose or a problem that that flashlight was trying to solve. And I would imagine this person never had it in their, you know, in their mentality that when they got it patented and it was their, you know, invention, that it would be used as a club or a, a flying object with which to hurt little, uh, you know, big brothers. It's not the original design for which it was created. And that small little picture, I think, is something we're familiar with, we've experienced in our life, where something is designed for a purpose... And you take that thing, that object, that invention, and you try and use it for a different purpose. You distort the original design, you do something else with it. Now, sometimes there are things that are like multi-tools, right? They have multiple functions that can be used different ways. But sometimes when you try and use an object that wasn't designed to do it, 
the task that you're trying for, sometimes it can end in hurt. And so as we're looking in Genesis chapter 1, we've been looking at the origin story of humanity, the way in which God designed us. And one of the things we discover in Genesis 1 is that there's specific purpose and design. There's intentionality with the way that God made us. More specifically today, we're going to be talking about how God made us male and female. And how there's design to this. And just like we can take a flashlight and throw it at someone, there's a way in which we can also take the way in which God made us as men and women and distort them and start to live out in a different path, a different purpose than the original purpose that God had designed. Genesis chapter 1 is going to introduce this to us. So with that in mind, I want to look at verses 26 through 27 of the opening chapter of the Bible. Here's what this says. It's day six of God's creative work. And he says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, here's what's happening in this passage. It's day six of God's creative work. It gets to the climax of creation. It's the special creation of mankind. And here we find out that God stops and says, let us make man in our image. That human beings are unique among the rest of creation. Uh, So your puppy or your kitten, your goldfish, uh, the sequoia tree, the oak tree outside, whatever you look in the rest of creation, the stars, all of those are wonderful. But only humanity is in the image of God. And in verse 26, it says, and God said, let us make man, your translation might say man, some translation might say humanity. So here, that's a Hebrew word that describes all of mankind. So it's not saying, let us make males in our image. No, it says, let us make humanity, mankind in our image. So human beings stand out from above the rest and God gives humanity a vocation, a purpose. He says, I want you to rule and exercise dominion over all of the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things. I want you to be my representatives and extend my rule throughout all of creation. It's this vision where humanity would partner with God to continue on in cultivating the land and stewarding the earth. So that's the calling that God gives to mankind in his image. And then verse 27 is this really unique poem. It's the first poem we have in the Bible. It's three lines. I want to pull it up again so you can follow the way this poem reads. Look back down at this poem. It's verse 27. It's a reflection of what it means that we're made in the image of God. It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So so here's one of the ways that Hebrew poetry works. Uh, Oftentimes when poetry is used in the Bible... It's more than just, you know, to try and change the way it looks on the page, okay? He's trying to get us to think through these, these uh, compared concepts, okay? So follow along. Look, the first line, we have it on the screen right there. First line, it says, so God created man in his own image. And then notice the second line is basically the same thing, but flip-flopped. It's like Yoda said this one, okay? In the image of God, he created him. So you got God created man in his own image, then it just reverses those two phrases, in the image of God, he created him. You see that? Are you tracking? Can you nod if you see it? Okay, he reverses. Okay, now notice what happens in the third line. First two lines says the same thing, just swapped. The third line, it says, male and female, he created them. So notice the third line, 
corresponds with the ending of the second line. You see that? He created him. He created them. You're checking. Head nod. Put it in the chat. I got it. I'm with you. Okay, let us know. All right. So notice then, if those two correspond, one of the ways poetry works in, in, Hebrew, in Hebrew thought is you would start to compare, okay, what are the things that are being lined up here? And if you're reading this poem closely, you notice that in the image of God and male and female, the second and third lines, they're in the same place in the sentence structure. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's a cue for us as the readers to start reflecting on and thinking about, hmm, image of God and male and female. Hmm. It's a cue for us to meditate on this, to think about it. What's being described here as humanity is coming on the scene. This is God's description of humanity as a whole. And one of the key components, the very first thing, in fact, one of the very first things we learn about humanity is that men and women both are made in the image of God. That the image of God and male and female are very closely linked. That male is not enough to image God. Female is not enough to image, image God. Male and female images God. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. The first truth we, that really jumps off the page in Genesis chapter 1 is that number one, men and women are equal in value. Men and women are equal in value. It's clear here in the opening page, chapter 1 of the Bible. Men and women are made in the image of God. As you continue reading the story in Genesis, we continue learning more of what's meant by this truth that we're made in God's image. Later on in chapter 9, God gives this prohibition. He speaks against murder. He says you shouldn't take another person's life. And the reason he says that you shouldn't murder someone is not because it's a mean thing to do, although it is. I don't recommend it. Uh, uh, not because it's something that, you know, arbitrarily is against a rule. He says, no, don't murder anyone because man is made in the image of God. Humanity has value. So this idea of being made in God's image carries with it this sense that human beings have innate dignity. From womb to tomb, life matters and has value in the sight of God. And if you're male or you're female, both are made in the image of God. Humanity, we are men and women equal in value in the sight of God. And it's essential if you think about the way that this continues to play out. The next command God gives in verse 28 is for them to be fruitful and multiply. Men and women are essential for one another. That if we're going to fill the earth and fulfill that calling of bringing all things under our stewardship and care, cultivating the land, that requires men and women cooperating together, unifying together. So we need each other. God describes this with clarity. Men and women, we're equal in the sight of God in value. Look with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. If you hop over to the next page, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, this is a further development in what it means to be made in the image of God. Look at what it says. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, I will make him a helper fit for him. So let me give you where we are. We skipped some verses over in the beginning of Genesis 2. This is zooming in on God's creation of man and woman in Genesis 2. And God with, there with one man there, he looks at this situation where it's just Adam and he draws this conclusion that's in stark contrast to the rest of creation. In chapter 1, there's this rhythm. God would make something and then he'd call it good. He would make something and he'd call it good. Behold, it was good. It repeats over and over again. But then you get to Genesis 2. 
You see man alone in the garden, and God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Therefore, God decides to create what is described as a helper fit for him. Now, that word helper in English, sometimes that, uh, with our connotation, sometimes that sounds like kind of a weak word, like a helper, like a kindergarten teacher would call her little kindergartner, my little helper, or, you know, like, what does that word helper mean? Well, let's let the Bible help inform that for us. I want to show you a few verses where that same Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word azer that we translate into our English Bible's helper. I want you to see where this word also occurs. Look with me. This is Psalm 70, verse 5. You'll see the word. Jump off the page. Here's what it says. Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Look at the next set of verses. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here's the idea of this word azer. Oftentimes in the Old Testament where this word pops up, it's describing the help and strength and deliverance that God brings when mankind is in a weak and destitute situation. When it says in Genesis 2.18, Therefore I will make a helper for Adam... He's describing God's decision to form woman to provide certain strengths that are lacking in Adam. In fact, I want you to think about for a moment, when's the last time you needed help on something? Maybe it was uh, students, you had a homework assignment, so you needed help on it. Maybe you went on YouTube to try and find somebody who taught you. Or maybe you had a car issue, so you went to a mechanic who could help you, or you're having health issues. Maybe you're getting counseling right now, so you're going to someone who's trained and can help walk you through that. Right? Whenever we need help, we go to a person that's different than us. Because if we go to someone who is exactly like us and only has the knowledge we have and the strengths we have, we won't get any help. We need someone who's different than we are to come and to step in and provide for us the help that we need. They must be strong in an area where we're weak. So God looks at Eve or looks at Adam and he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for you. Here's the second thing I want you to note. We learned, number one, that men and women are equal in value. But number two, we learned that men and women are different in design. We're different in design. Eve, formed for Adam, is different than Adam. In fact, if she was the same as Adam, she couldn't help Adam. It's in her differences. And so that's the idea of that next word. So he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for Adam. That word fit, some other translations might say a helper suitable. Uh, the, the idea of this word is that it's someone who is in some ways opposite to you. There's this compliment. You're not the same. They fit you. They are in a sense like your counterpart. And so Eve steps in on the scene created by God to be someone to provide strength where Adam's weak and who's different than Adam, she's opposite to Adam in some ways, and she's a helper fit for him. She's his counterpart, a compliment to Adam. That's the idea. So here in the very opening chapters of the Bible, these two truths, really, they jump off the page. We're equal in value in the sight of God, and at the same time, men and women are very different in design. And God looks at his creation, he makes all of it, and his conclusion is it's very good. Genesis 1 and 2 give us the original vision, the design that God has for humanity. That design, as you read on and you get to the next chapter, starts to become corrupted. 
man and woman, they choose their own path. And basically, instead of imaging God like a clear mirror would reflect the glory of God and the nature of God, man and woman instead are like these fractured mirrors. Though the image of God is still on us as human beings, we have these distorted images of what God is like. We fail to live up to these ideals. We don't often treat each other as though we're equal. And we don't understand the distinctness, the differences that we carry to provide strength where the other's weak. But these two very important truths that form our understanding of what it means to be male and female are critical for us to understand how we're going to flourish as a human society, of what family looks like. And so the, there's no coincidence, it's not an accident, that it's these two really foundational truths that jump off the page in the very first couple of chapters of the Bible. It's no accident that these two have historically been attacked and distorted by the world, by our culture. And I want to walk with you through the two distortions. So the first one we'll we'll talk about the distortion of that men and women are equal in value, that gets distorted in our world today. And the second one, that men and women are different in design, that gets distorted as well. Let's talk about the first. We'll call it this, we'll call it sexism. Sexism, the belief that one sex is superior to the other. That one gender is better than, of more value than the other. And that is a distortion of Genesis chapter 1 of God's good original design that says, no, men and women are the image of God. That men and women are equal in value and dignity in the sight of God. There is no superior. We are equal in dignity before our heavenly father. And so historically, historically, we've seen the way that this distortion has wreaked havoc in people's lives. Now, no, this is general, so it can happen both ways. Females thinking themselves superior, acting superior to men, men acting superior to women. But historically speaking, for much of human history, across cultures and across times, men have historically taken advantage of their physical strength, their size to intimidate and oppress women. That the way this has manifested itself, this distortion, more often than not, has been males viewing themselves as superior to women and creating structures that emphasize that and building their companies or building rules and such that exclude unnecessarily, that devalue women. And I want you to think about the way that that completely twists something good that God created and uses it for self-serving purposes. Men uh, are created in many ways, on the whole, okay, this is not a stereotype, but on the whole, men, typically larger in size, I'm the exception, okay, uh, larger in size and have, have bigger muscle mass on average anatomically. Are there exceptions? Yes. Is, does that mean that women are weak? No, that's not what we're describing. But men are created by God and we're different than women and men have a strength that's given to them and God gave us that strength. Don't miss this. God gave us that strength to protect, to care for, to defend, to stand up for those who might be trampled upon. God gave us that strength for that purpose. And what sin does is it comes in and takes that gift from God that's intended to serve and care for the other and instead uses it to coerce, oppress, and put down the other. The gift that was given to steward so that you might care for and defend and lift up Men have historically used that gift from God to intimidate, to oppress, 
And that violates, it's a distortion. It's a wicked distortion of Genesis chapter one, of God's beautiful design for how he made us. Male and female, in his image, equal in value in the sight of God. So as Jesus followers, we look to our savior Jesus in the way that he navigated this. Jesus cops on the scene in the Greco-Roman world in a time period, mind you, where women were not allowed to be witnesses in court. That if a woman testified to having seen a crime, she would have just been discredited in this time period just because she's a woman. In a time period where women were disregarded, where rabbis like Jesus would never in a million years have a woman as one of their disciples, their followers. And here comes Jesus onto the scene starts calling people to himself and included among his 12 disciples that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, there's this outer band of disciples that follow him around. And they travel with him to different places and we find out that among Jesus, this itinerant rabbi who's preaching about the kingdom of God all throughout the region of Galilee, we learn about all of these women that are following Jesus, that are learning about Jesus, that are in some ways patrons who are supporting the ministry of Jesus breaking all of the cultural norms for what a rabbi would do in his time period. Then you look at John chapter four, where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, this broken woman who has this past where she's been through pain, where she's made huge mistakes, where she has deep wounds and failures and shame. And Jesus has this conversation with her in a time period where it was considered unthinkable for a man, let alone a rabbi to speak to a woman in public. Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman, invites her to experience eternal life in him, experiencing the fulfillment of the living waters that Jesus offers her. She finds brand new life and Jesus' disciples, they get back and they see he's talking to this woman and they freak out. They say, Jesus, what are you doing? Nobody does this. You go on in the story and you find out Jesus after he dies on the cross and rises from the grave. In fact, the scene around Jesus at the cross, we read about the women, his followers who were there, who were there till his last day. And then on his resurrection Sunday, we read about the first people to show up at the graveside of the risen Jesus. How it's Mary, a couple of Marys, multiple. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene. You, you read about these women followers of Jesus who so loved him that who, Jesus had changed everything for them and they're there and they are the ones with the privilege of not only first seeing the risen Jesus, but they are then entrusted as the first messengers of the good news that Jesus is alive. And they go on and they tell the disciples, he's alive, he's risen. And you know what they do? They don't believe him. See, Jesus... He championed women. He was going against the norms of his current day in so many ways. And this continues on in the Jesus movement. If you look in the book of Acts, you read about prominent women like Priscilla, who her and her husband Aquila were this dynamic duo power couple that were these amazing, amazing godly individuals that God used tremendously as leaders of multiple churches. You read about a woman named Lydia, this wealthy business owner who also hosted a church in her home. After she started to follow Jesus, she became one of the key hosts of housing a church in her house. In the book of Romans, this letter that the apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, the letter is delivered by a woman named Phoebe. Paul calls her uh, our beloved minister, Phoebe. 
And Phoebe, as the person who delivers this letter, would have been charged with reading the letter out loud to the church. And then the woman would have, well, Phoebe would have also been the person, because she was there when the letter was composed, she would have been the per person who helped explain any questions that somebody might have. And if you've read Romans any, you know you'd have a lot of questions. Be asking a lot, what does this mean? What does that mean? Phoebe could help you. A woman who loved God, that had a calling on her life, that God used tremendously. So this idea of sexism is so antithetical to the gospel, so antithetical to God's original good design, and it goes both ways. Again, historically, it's predominantly been men oppressing women. But whether that's a, a woman writing off a man like he's incapable thinking demeaning, whatever it might be, it happens both ways. But as Jesus' followers being formed by God's word, our cue is here in Genesis chapter one, we are equal in value. And so it would be a courageous and helpful exercise for you to ask someone, maybe a trusted friend, maybe your spouse, hey, how do you see me treat people who are of the opposite sex? Do you feel like I'm, treating them with equity, with honor? Or is there some part of me that's thinking myself superior or them inferior? Is there a prejudice? Am I showing partiality in some way? See, this simple truth that we are made equal in the image of God, this is something that for many of us in this room, it's personal because maybe you have wounds in your life. Maybe you have some memories in your life of ways in which this has not played out in your life well. Where you've been the one who was abused or oppressed or put aside. And there is healing. And what God wants you to know is his design is that you would be honored and treated with equity, with value, with love. That you matter in his sight. That first one that gets twisted and distorted is that men and women are equal in value resulting in sexism. But the second distortion is that sometimes we blur the differences between the sexes altogether. And this is a relatively recent dynamic in human history. Last 15 or 20 years, perhaps beyond that, there is a distortion of the second thing we learn in Genesis 2. We learn that men and women are different in design. She's a helper fit for Adam. It's exactly the fact that she's different that provides the strength to complement Adam's weakness and vice versa. But there's this active attempt in our world today to blur those lines. To say there are no differences. See, in many ways, it's, a, it's an attempt to try and resolve the problem of the first distortion of sexism. Our world has attempted to solve that problem of sexism by suggesting there's no differences between the sexes. And that any differences there are are just culturally constructed. They're inventions of hum human imagination, but there's nothing different about us. It's a denial of the fact that God made the woman as a counterpart to Adam, as a helper fit for Adam. Someone who's distinct and different in design, and the difference is good. And so there's this active really challenge in our culture. There's this active pursuit to try and influence our world to think there's no difference between men and women. It's to try and feminize men and masculinize women to blur them. And going into these sensitive waters, talking about this topic, this is a, heat, this is a loaded topic. And there's this active attempt to say, no, you know, let, 
Let all these cultural constructions, let's put them aside. And it's an overthrowing of God's good design. That men were, were different. Women were different. And it's not bad. It's a good thing. We're different. It's a good thing. We're not the same. There's complimenting that's happened. That happens here. And so in this context, I want to offer to you an alternative view of the way in which you approach trying to bring a solution to sexism. It's not by blurring the differences. I want to give you two scriptures to charge you that address men and women. The first one is an address to women, and it describes in Proverbs chapter 31 this really powerful, beautiful image of what a woman who fears the Lord is like, a woman who loves God and serves him. Listen to how this is described. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised." Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works be praised. Let her works praise her in the gates. What a powerful description of a woman fulfilling her calling. It says strength and dignity are what she's clothed in. That she's a woman who tends to her household, cares for her family well, who loves, who has wisdom pouring out of her mouth. That she's this incredible teacher who when you listen to her words, they're saturated with truth and helpfulness and goodness of a woman who's not idle but is hard at work and supports and brings strength. Says beauty on the outside, that, that fades. But the unfading beauty of a woman who fears the Lord. Now we're talking about something altogether different. Says her children praise her and her husband praises her. Listen to how the Bible casts this vision of what it looks like to be a woman who walks in the fear of the Lord, trusting in God, having this reverence for who he is, who has strength and dignity as her clothing. This is the vision. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is addressing men. Verses 13 and 14 say this. Men, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Here, Paul is addressing the men of the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, he's charging them, be watchful, be alert. Take up your calling as a defender, as a protector. Stand firm in your faith. That men, there's this calling that we should stand firmly on the message of Jesus, on the gospel, and lead our families as servants. And then here, there's these two phrases that, Honestly, if our world read these two phrases, absent verse 14, they would say, oh, here you go, toxic masculinity. Verse 13, it ends, act like men and be strong. But listen to how the Bible describes what acting like men and being strong looks like. It looks like men letting all that you do be done in love. You want to know what a man acts like? Preferring the people around him, putting their needs above his own. You want to know what a man looks like? It looks like someone laying themselves down to lift others up. You want to know what it looks like to act like a man and be strong according to scripture? It means putting the others around you, putting their needs above your own, serving them, taking whatever gift, whatever power, whatever influence God has given to you to lift others up. That everything you do be done in love. 
That's a high calling. And the solution is not, hey, let's blur all the differences altogether. The solution is for us to recover and return to God's original design. To come back to the way God made us in his image. That we are the same in value, equal in value, but different in design. This is the way that God made us. Ladies, that's a good passage to meditate on, to think about, to memorize throughout this week. Men, 1 Corinthians 16, great passage to memorize, to think through, meditate on this week. Everything we do be done in love. Can you just imagine for a moment what our world would look like if Christians who followed Jesus would not fall under the illusion of whichever cultural voice we're listening to. Imagine if we didn't fall prey to that view and vision of what it means to be a man and a woman, that there are no differences, that it's all culturally constructed. Imagine what it would look like if we rose up and we actually expressed this love that's being described here. That we would honor each other with equity that we'd honor each other equal in value and yet at the same time not be ashamed or afraid of our differences, of the way God gave us different gifts and different roles. That just because we're different doesn't mean one's better than the other. Imagine what could happen if we as a church really embraced this and the children in our homes grew up in a home where this was expressed and valued, where they saw mom value dad and dad value mom. They saw the way dad spoke to other women with honor, with respect. They saw the way mom treated others with respect, with value. Imagine if the companies that were run by Christians and the departments where Christians were in the place of management ran their departments and influenced their spheres to breathe equity into those places where they were treated in a way that demonstrates this Genesis 1 reality that we are equal in the sight of God, where we don't discriminate or prejudice against in a way that devalues others. Imagine what we could do. You see, this reality, this principle here, it's reflected in the very image of God. And if you think about God, God, as we read throughout the story of the Bible, you continue on. It's interesting. He says, let us make man in our image. There's often noted there's a plurality there. And so how can God be one? But at the same time, why would he say, let us make man in our image? As you read through the Bible, you find out that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a trinity. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past have been equal in value. Jesus is not superior to the Father in terms of value or in terms of deity. It's not like Jesus is a lesser God than the Father, right? The Holy Spirit is not lesser than Jesus. No, they are co-equal. They're equal in their divinity. They're equal in value. And yet each person in the Trinity has a different role. The Father sends the Son into the world to serve as the Messiah, our representative. God become flesh. The Son sends the Holy Spirit to go and indwell his people to transform us from the inside out. So he can be his presence around the world. And you know what doesn't happen within the Trinity? frustration and power grabs trying to steal from one another and using their power to make the other jealous. It's this perfect dance of love and trust that though they have different roles, they are the same value. It's this relationship of love. And if human beings are called to be the image of God, then it would make sense 
that God didn't make us all the same. But there's diversity within the most basic human relationship, man and woman. We're equal in value, but different in design, and that is good. And Jesus, the Son of God, would call his people who claim to follow him to live in a way that honors his life, that follows and patterns ourselves after the way he lived, that we would be champions for equity and justice and righteousness, that we would stand firm on the truth of God's word, not denying our differences, but helping men and women flourish in their callings as those made in the image of God. But before we wrap up our time together, I want to invite those of you who have never received a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We've talked about the way in which Jesus was a pioneer and how he honored women in his day. We talked about the ways in which Jesus went on a cross and he rose from the dead. But more, more important, and the way that Jesus was a cultural change agent, for more important than that, Jesus did something for everyone, including you. You see, he came as the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, our representative, the true image of God came and Jesus lived a perfect life. Unlike any one of us, perfectly reflecting the image of God, walking in obedience to God. And Jesus, though he was perfect, was sentenced to death. He gave his life. He was crucified to a cross. And on the cross, Jesus takes your sin, your guilt, your shame, all the aspects of your life that are distortions of God's image that he wants to bring about. Jesus takes all of that guilt and sin and shame on himself. And on the cross, he paid for your sin. He gave his life as a sacrifice, the ultimate act of love. He gave himself, taking on the judgment our sins deserve. And after he's buried in the grave three days later, he rises up from death, showing once and for all that sin has been paid for, that you can experience new life in him. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, then right now is your moment. I want to invite you to do that right now with me. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes right there where you are? Bow your heads, close your eyes in a quiet moment between you and God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so if you hear me right now and you realize this is me, I, I, I need that. I want a relationship with God. I need salvation. I want to be restored to God. Then right there where you are, would you respond by confessing, Jesus, you are my Lord. Just from your heart in a quiet place, just call out to God. Say, Jesus, you're in charge of my life. You are God. I am not. I surrender to you. Tell him, Jesus, I, I believe that you lived a perfect life. That you are the image of God. And that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe you rose from the dead. I trust in you, Jesus. I want to follow you all of my days. Father, for every one of us in this room, we're in different places when it comes to this topic. Lord, undoubtedly, there are some here who have deep wounds because someone used the, the power and the influence. Someone used the strength that you entrusted to them 
to use to help others, someone used it to hurt them. And so, Father, for for those among us who are hurting, Lord, would you just meet them with your presence? Jesus, our high priest, would you just whisper in their ear the reality that you understand what it's like to be oppressed? You understand what it's like to be cast aside, to be neglected, to be betrayed. And so, Jesus, would you strengthen us, help us, Jesus. We lift up our eyes to the hills. From where does our help come from? Our help comes from you. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you made that decision today to put your trust in Jesus, I would like to invite you to go to cityrev.org faith. You can pull out your phone right now. If you're online watching with us, open up a separate tab on your browser. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. There's a short form. It'll take you a few seconds to fill out, and we'd love to send you a Bible. We want to give you a Bible, put it in your hands, and help you start growing in your walk with God, getting to know His Word. And those of you who are here with us in the room, we have Bibles available for you as well in our guest services tent. Just make sure you let them know, say, hey, today I put my faith in Jesus, and we'd love to connect with you there. Hey, we're going to close our time in worship by singing this. There's no one like our God. There's nothing better than Him. Let's praise that, praise Him and sing that together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.